This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Presented by Pastano. On today's show, Brian sits down with tennis icon Chris Everett. I was in demand, and I remember my dad, you know, really put his foot down and said, no, I mean, she, she needs to practice. We're going to, you know, keep her down to earth, and we're not going to get totally overawed with this whole, you know, limelight thing. So thank God I had a parent like him. Now, with Sports Business Radio, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show dedicated to covering the business side of sports. We're happy to be powered by our friends at Pistano. Follow them online at Pistano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. We've got a big guest this week, someone I've wanted to have on the show for 12 years. Chris Abbott, tennis icon. She is also a broadcaster with ESPN. When you talk about just the biggest of the big female athletes, someone who burst on the scene in the 1970s, won 18 Grand Slams, won 90% of her matches, and was the first female athlete to earn a million dollars in endorsements. Chris Everett did it all. She's still very prominent today. I look forward to my conversation with her on today's show. I'm joined by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing good, and as we were talking before we started uh, doing the show, um, I have a Chris Everett I'll put this in quotes, signed tennis racket when I was a kid. I thought that was pretty cool. I loved watching her. She was uh, she was so fun to watch, explosive on the court, and seemed like just an awesome person off the court, too. And like you said, first one with a million bucks in endorsements. So she was kind of the, you know, she got it, got it rolling for female tennis players. I grew up playing a little bit of tennis. Uh, I definitely paid attention to the golden era. So, yeah. you know, on the women's side, you had Chris Everett, you had Martina Navratilova, you had, uh, you know, Steffi Graf kind of took the torch from them. On the men's side, Jimmy Connors, Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe. That was the golden era of yep. tennis in my mind. I still enjoy it today. Sure. But I really look back on that era fondly. And uh, I look forward to discussing Chris's career with her on today's show. It's just it's staggering the success that she had mm-hmm. on the court. You saw this uh, girl next door get onto the court and yeah. oh she's so polite and you know classy and and she just destroy Dominated. you yeah. on the court. <laughs> so, you know, very different than when Serena Williams For gets sure. on the court today and you look at Serena and she's such an imposing mm-hmm. figure and you know, she's got the muscles and you know, you look at her and go no one's got a chance. Well, that wasn't the yeah. case with Chris Everett, but she had every bit the success that Serena had. You know, Serena is closing in on Grand Slam number 23 if she wins the U.S. Open coming up. But, I mean, here's another thing that we'll get into, but just the prize money, Griggs. So, Mm -hmm. you know, back when Chris Everett would win Wimbledon in the 70s, she'd make $100,000 for winning. Coming up at the U.S. Open, men and women share equal prize money. Each winner Three and a half million dollars. Mm-hmm. So prize money's gone from a hundred grand. Wow. And and this stat really put everything into perspective for me. Last year, twenty fifteen, the first seven months of twenty fifteen, Serena Williams earned nine point one million dollars in prize money because mm-hmm. she was dominating. Yeah. Chris Everett in her entire career won eight point eight million dollars <laughs> in prize money. So Jeez. that's great. But when you look at what wow. the money is today compared to what it was, it's like when we had Jack Nicholas on and mm-hmm. you know, we compared what he made to Ben Hogan, but then you compare what Tiger Woods has made to Jack Nicholas and it's just like, wow, the money sure has gone up as the the time has For passed. Sure. You know what's cool too about Chris too is she's she's still relevant. I mean, she's on ESPN, you see her around, she's talking tennis all the time. She's a guest with a lot of the tennis, um, you know, the the US Open and other things going around. So it's cool that she's kept her brand alive and she's still she's still talking tennis. It's great. 
Absolutely. And she has uh, a clothing company called Chrissy by Tail, which has done very well. I like it because, you know, so many of the companies now you see, you know, they're they're doing outfits for the 21-year-old models. Yeah. This company is doing it for the moms and the yeah. women who play at the tennis clubs and for every shape and size. And I look forward to talking to Chris Everett about Chrissy by Tail as well. Uh, just back from Twitter, Griggs, mm-hmm. uh, we had our Sports PR Summit social media workshop at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco. What a fantastic event. I would advise people if they miss the event to search the hashtag Sports PR Summit or just go to our Twitter feed at Sports PR Summit. But, you know, I met a few athletes there. I met Justin Forsett, the Pro Bowl running back from the Baltimore Ravens. What a nice guy. Uh, Marquette King, the punter for the Oakland Raiders. Uh, Carolyn Joyce, our friend, who will actually be on a show next week with us talking Olympics. She was there. But then uh, Raleigh Blank from Twitter, uh, she does sports partnerships for them. I had wanted to meet her for a long time. We just had some really fantastic uh, conversations, networking. It was a it was a really fun event. Well, it's cool too, and like like you, with these events, it's such a it's such a, a niche thing to do because you network with people that you're not going to meet. I mean, you can't just meet these people on the street normally, and you can't right. get into their building like Twitter is impossible to get into. Right. So it's a cool uh, opportunity to network with people that you can't just you know call up and say, hey, let's go meet. It's a cool opportunity to do that. So so nice job, good event, and a great location down in the Bay Area there with Twitter. So it's awesome. And much like with. Chris Everett, you know, I, I meet Justin Forsett, I meet Marquette King. They are looking to life after football. They are looking, you know, they were there for right. business meetings. Right. They were there to learn more about social media. They're learning about their brand. And, you know, it was really cool to see that. Tennis icon Chris Everett coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. Powered by Postano. Hi, it's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pastano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pistano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pistano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pistano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is tennis icon Chris Everett. She is the winner of 18 Grand Slam titles. She has a 90% win percentage. She won 125 consecutive matches on clay and at least one major title for 13 years in a row, records that still stand today. And she is now a broadcaster with ESPN. You can find her on Twitter at Chrissy Everett. Chris, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I know you've had uh, travels, so I appreciate you getting up and uh, doing this conversation. No, no problem. 
So let's go back to the 1970s when you burst on the scene at the 1971 U.S. Open. You know, I look at Serena and Venus Williams, Tiger Woods, LeBron James, prodigies in recent times. What was it like being a prodigy in the 1970s? How bright was that spotlight and what were the expectations of you? Um, it was uh, a little overwhelming. I mean, but at the same time, you know, we didn't have social media. We didn't have, I mean, we didn't have half of the um, attention and the spotlight that these stars nowadays have. So, I mean, I was basically um, 16 years old. I went into the U.S. Open. I was, I just won the National 18, so I was number one player in the country, junior player in the country. I had really not much experience uh, in women's tournaments. And, uh, you know, they put me on center court the first match, and I remember I beat the number one player in Germany, 6-love, 6-love. <laughs> so it was like, uh, uh, oh, this isn't that tough. <laughs> so I was thinking, you know, it's like, wow, this isn't that tough. And then um, I just remember that U.S. Open was like a fairy tale because they put I was on center court every single match, and I had, I think, three upsets of, top women players and I reached the semifinals and then I had to play Billie Jean King who was you know number one in the world at that time and but I mean I was staying at my aunt and uncle's house in Larchmont driving in every day and when I would go back I'd still have to you know do the dishes and fold my laundry and I mean <laughs> I a typical you know schoolgirl, 16 year old schoolgirl, but you know all of a sudden I'm being interviewed by you know Howard Cosell and Bud Collins and and it was, I, you know, I don't know. It, it was a bit overwhelming, but, you know, I think I had a really that kind of temperament that I was pretty cool and calm about it. So I, I, I didn't become ruffled and I didn't let it affect me. You know, today you see the academies like the one you have and, and people really show you the ropes when you're a youngster. Did anyone take you aside and say, okay, now things are going to go real fast for you. Here's how you handle it. You know, my dad was my coach, and again, um, he was very low-key, and he was very humble, and, and as soon as I got back um, from the U.S. Open, I remember my whole school came out with a school band, <laughs> the airplane. you know, I had a thousand people there with a school band, and went right back to school and had to make a speech, like my first speech ever for the first time. And I remember then, you know, Life Magazine, Time Magazine. I remember I, I was, a lot of people were uh, trying to get some uh, press and, and I was in demand. And I remember my dad, you know, really put his foot down and said, no, I mean, she, she needs to practice. I mean, she hasn't really achieved that much yet. And, and we're going to, you know, keep her down to earth and we're not going to get totally um, uh, overawed with this whole, you know, limelight thing. So, he was, thank God I had a parent like him who was, again, very low-key and very humble, and he just wanted me to go back to Fort Lauderdale and go to school and practice, you know, my game at the end of the day. So you came from a very grounded family. You were the first female yeah. athlete to earn a million dollars in endorsements. I remember your Lipton Ice Tea commercials, your Converse commercials. What were some of your favorite uh, commercials that you did and just overall favorite partnerships? Actually, I think it was the first million dollars in prize money. I think that was what I I was known for because um, the endorsements weren't publicly 
you know what I'm saying? I mean, the public really didn't know how much I was making, okay. how much anybody was making persons, but um, Lipton Ice Tea definitely was one of the first ones, And but I had long-term uh, relationships with Wilson probably more than anything, and Rolex watches, and I mean, I had some good endorsements, and, um, you know, because the, I was young and sort of <clears throat> innocent and, you know, sort of, I think the people could, they really grew up with me because I started my career at 16. I retired at 34. So they knew the American people, especially saw me grow up and who I was dating and what was going on in my life and, you know, through marriage and having children. And I think that, um, you know, I was approachable. I think that was the bottom line. So I was very lucky to have some good, some good endorsements. When people came to you then, and or if they come to you today and they say, we want to partner with you on something, what are some of the elements you look for from a, an endorsement partnership? It's always been long-term. I mean, I very rarely do one pop, you know, one year of a pop thing, like, a, you know, a big contract for a year, uh, a big contract for two years. I usually, I like to do long-term make long-term commitments. And I think even, you know, I had a really good manager from IMG back when I was in my early 20s. Um, my dad managed me up until like 24, 25, and he realized that he didn't have the the resources. So I went with IMG, and I had a really nice manager, Bob Kane, who when he set me up with endorsements, it would be with Wilson or with a clothing line or whatever for 10, 15 years. Because, you know, he, he he thought it was really important to think about life after tennis and not just during tennis. And then when you retire, you look around, there's nothing left. So, I, and I think IMG was really good about that because they started the Arnold Palmer and and they started the Jack Nicholas. You know, they worked with them and they're still earning great money right now and they're in their 70s. And you have a company now, Chrissy by Tail, which I want to ask you about here in a moment. But how has your partnerships with the other companies you just mentioned helped yeah. you be the president and CEO of Chrissy by Tail? Well, I think that companies see that I, I, I'm loyal and I stick to, you know, what I believe in and I'm into building a company. I have um, a tennis academy when you, which you mentioned in, in Boca that that has been going on for 20 years now. And again, it wasn't a flash in the pan. And I have a charity tennis tournament that's been going on for 25 years now. And, you know, ESPN, this is my fifth year, but I have another four-year contract. So I really, I stick to my companies mm-hmm. through thick and thin, you know, and I think that Chrissy by Tail, um, you know, I always wanted to have a clothing line to fit like real women, you know, whether it was tennis moms or women's league players or, you know, competitive players on the WTA tour. I always, I wanted to have, I wanted to put some of my ideas and some of the styles that I wore in the 70s and in the 80s and the things that I loved, like the ruffles or like lace or, you know, like backless dresses. Or I wanted to come up with my own line, you know, that would be comfortable for women and not just models. And I think that's basically why what I'm trying to do with Christy by Tail right now. That's great. How do you market the brand? How do you get the word out? I mean, obviously, you have a big stage and you have a good following on social media, but it also seems like you're not one of those people that goes out and touts everything that you, you know, that you're doing. 
So yeah. how do you how do you get the word out to the moms and to the people at the tennis clubs that you have this company that uh, they should try the apparel? Well, that's what that, that's where you come in. <laughs> I'm happy to do that. <laughs> no, you know, I try I I try to do as much press as I can. Um and I try to, you know, get into some advertising into the tennis magazines and before the US Open we're gonna have a, a, a cocktail party introducing the fall and um next year's line at the US Open. So I try to take advantage of my being with ESPN at the Grand Slams and, and try to give it a little bit of press during the Grand Slams. But, you know, it's word of mouth. It's a lot of tennis shops. You know, we're already in a lot of tennis shops. And um, and social media certainly helps. So um, the branding, you know, and the publicity is, is definitely key and very crucial to getting the word out. Tennis icon Chris Everett is joining us here on Sports Business Radio. You can find her on Twitter at Chrissy Everett. You can find her clothing company on Twitter at Chrissy by Tail. So the prize money, do you ever just look at it? I've had Jack Nicholas on the show before. I've had John McEnroe on. And we look at the you know, the prize money when you were playing. You won $100,000 if you won a Grand Slam in the 70s. You know, in a few weeks, the prize money is three and a half million dollars for both the men yeah. and and the women. Do you just shake your head and go, "Wow, look at that money"? You know what? I feel really lucky that I came up after Billie Jean, our leader and our pioneer, after she spoke up for equal prize money. Because when you look at it, her generation was was amateur and getting nothing. Hmm. So I was the next generation and. To me, in the 70s, when you think about it, winning $100,000 at, at a tournament was, is just like now winning a million dollars at a tournament or $2 million. It's, I mean, it's all relative. And remember, I mean, there's a lot more money now, but to me, there's a lot more demands on the players. Mm-hmm. They have to hire, you know, they're high, everyone's hiring five or six players, uh, five or six people to be on their team, whether it's a physio, whether it's a coach, a hitting partner, a nutritionalist you know, masseuse or whatever. I mean, these players come with a big team with big overhead and, um, you know, things are much more expensive now. So, I mean, you know, how much money is really enough for somebody? I made a great living over 18 years of, of playing professional tennis and with my endorsements. And, and I, and I just think, I think the players nowadays deserve the big money they're getting because it just seems that there's, um, the spotlight's on them a little bit more, and that, that's a heavy price to pay for lack of privacy. And they're doing more off-court with their companies and with their endorsements. So kudos to them. They deserve every cent they're getting. Serena Williams is the dominant tennis player in women's tennis today. She's going for Grand Slam number 23 at the U.S. Open. I know that she reached out to you a few years ago. What did she reach out to you about? Did she just say, hey, look, I'm in a similar position to you and I want to pick your brain? What has that relationship been like? Um, it actually was, She, re- I think it was more like um, on the same lines as, um, hey, I really like that dress you had on last night. You made it. <laughs> and uh, then we started, uh, but she did. She was very um, engaging to me. We have a nice friendship. We text each other all the time. Um, I always talk, you know, we always talk about her her reaching her goals of Grand Slams and and we we do have a lot in common because we both have been number one and we both dealt with the pressure and uh, expectations and lack of privacy. And so we've been through a lot of the same things. I think her on a much bigger scale, though, in this day and age. But, you know, she's very engaging and she's very she's got a great 
personality and and uh you know I, I i really enjoy the give and take and i have no problem commentating her matches and separating the friendship from serena williams the tennis player because I'm, i've been openly critical of her um when i've needed to be and and complimentary when i when i when i should be so but it, it's really um she's a good girl and and uh you know i think she's going to keep breaking some records here Maybe you can discuss for a moment the importance of relationships with competition. I mean, I know you and Martina, I've seen the 30 for 30. It was fantastic. But you guys went skiing together. You trained together. But then you were fierce rivals on the court. What was that like? Because I know, you know, in some sports or some relationships, people don't hang out off the court with the person that they're competing against. You know, I don't mean this to be a sexist remark, but I think it might be a little more difficult for women to really bond like to go out and compete and try to beat each other and then go out to dinner afterwards to let it go i think it's easier for guys to do that um i think women uh, you know there's a little more emotion and a little more drama associated with them and um the thing is with martina and i don't get me wrong that happened at the end of our career you know where we became very close i mean Mm -hmm. i was in my 30s when I went to Aspen, I went to her house and skied with her and worked out with her. But trust me, in the middle 20s, when the, when it was really heated and when the competition, the rivalry was really heated, we didn't hang out together a lot. So, but I but I see the women, you know, in this day and age. Like I know Serena's good friends with you know Caroline Wozniacki, and uh, most of the, most of the top women are friendly. But at, at, they have their teams and they have their camps and they'd rather go out to dinner with their coach and they'd rather not have to, have to deal with talking about tennis and talking about competition. So I think that's human nature, really, not to be socialized a lot with your competition. I grew up watching you and Martina and John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg and Jimmy Connors. I'm, I'm 47 years old. Um, uh-huh. And I, I still love the tennis of today, but I look fondly on your era. The state of tennis today, is it as good as it was when you were playing? Is there anything that you would change today if you were appointed the czar of tennis? Wow, that's a heavy one. That's a heavy one. Um, you know, I think that's what ESPN um, and the WTA Women's Tennis Association, I think we're all trying to figure out right now how um, we can engage more with the fans at the tournaments and on TV. Mm-hmm. And we've, that's why we've started, like, you know, before the players walk on the court, we have on-court interviews. How do you feel? What, do you, what are you thinking about going into this match? What are your tactics? We're trying to get um, a little more engagement with the, the, the TV audience because, you know, when you look at golf, they have such great ratings because you see everybody. You see everybody in four hours. You see everybody. But in tennis, very often, you'll see one match or two matches. You won't see everybody. You won't see all the top players. And if that one match is is a wipeout and it's not a good match, you know, people are going to turn off their TVs. So tennis is a little tougher to sell on TV um, for the spectators and for the people watching at home than other sports, football, for instance. I mean, basketball, you have a whole team. You see everybody. You see LeBron and everybody else. You know, you just don't see LeBron. So um, we're trying to figure out what we can do to make it more attractive, whether it's interviewing a player after the first set, 
okay, what do you need to do? You lost this first bet, what do you need to do? But, you know, so we're really in exploring and investigating now how to make tennis more attractive um, for the viewer. So, U.S. tennis. I have this theory, and, and tell me if you agree or disagree. It seems like in the United States, I'd say in the last 15 to 20 years, we've become a country where the youngsters that are growing up, and I have an 11-year-old daughter, so I have a, a in-house case study, they seem to gravitate to team sports a little bit more than individual yeah. sports. And yeah. I'm wondering, is that why we're seeing the lack of great U.S. tennis players because they're playing team sports versus individual sports? That year absolutely on the money i mean that's the way i look at it you know i i mean my kids um were very, were good tennis players they played you know high school tennis and they played tournaments and they they loved it but you know when you're five or six or seven years old you want to be with your friends don't you right you want to play soccer and basketball with your friends and mom you know i want is david going to be there you know it's 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 less pressure it's more camaraderie and also you know, up until now, now we have smaller rackets. We have bigger tennis balls, like Nerf balls. We have smaller tennis courts for the young kids. But really, we didn't we didn't have that growing. You know, up until three or four years ago, we didn't have that. So young tennis players did not experience success at a young age. Whereas basketball, you have lower baskets, and soccer, you have a smaller field. You know, so there hasn't been success at a young age, and I think that's discouraged young tennis players also. But you're right on the money. I mean, we have so many great team sports now, and the money's unbelievable, oh, yeah. right? And the team sports and the college scholarships are unbelievable. And let me tell you, tennis is a very lonely sport, and it's very isolated. It's you and you alone on the court. And it, it does, And a lot of young kids don't want to be feel that way. Hmm. Chris Everett, tennis icon. You can find her on Twitter at Chrissy Everett. Just a few minutes left with her. Some of your biggest influences off the court, you've talked about your dad, you talked about your agent at IMG. Is there someone that you identified earlier in your career and you said, this is someone I really want to learn from, or maybe you've learned from that person uh, after you've retired? Uh, Billie Jean King probably has been, uh, if you had asked me a woman who's influenced my life um, and who I've looked up to and admired and, and listened to, you know, Billie Jean, she's so funny. She's, I mean, at a young age, she had advice for me about, she was president of the Women's Tennis Association, and when I was like 18 years old, she looked at me and she said, okay, you need to be president next year. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I go, I know nothing about politics. I know nothing about business. And she said, well, I'm retiring, and people will only listen to a, a top player, so you're going to be president. So she kind of um, helped me, mentored me into becoming president. And then, you know, she played doubles with me and helped me, encouraged me to come up to the net you know, in Bali and, and, and even in my love life, she would have advice for me about, you know, my boyfriends and my husbands. And even when I had kids, she'd have advice for me. And she never even had kids. So I would like to say, Billy, you've never had children. She goes, yeah, but I know you've got to set boundaries and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. So she's, she's been there for me, you know, throughout my life. And, and she's probably the wisest person that I've ever met in my life. Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee for President of the United States. I know you've been a role model for girls for a long time. Again, I have an 11-year-old daughter. Do you sometimes just say, wow, look how far we've come, or do you say we still have a long way to go? It's, it's been gradual. 
And it's funny you mentioned Hillary because when I think of Billie Jean, I think they're so similar. Hmm. I mean, the way they talk, hmm. the way, you know, their leadership, their thinking, their forward thinking, I mean, their visions. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I love it that she's uh, um, the Democratic nominee, and I love it that, that there, potentially she could become president of the United States. And, and I think women are coming into their own, but it's still gradual. I, I think it's still in the workforce. I think it's still a man's world. And, I, and I, it, that's obvious because women are still getting paid less, and women don't have as high positions in business as men do. So it's still we still have a lot of work to do, and it's still gradual. But um, at least you know, at least we're going upward. Yeah. As, again, as a father of an 11 year old daughter, I, I feel the same way you do. I feel like you know there's been good progress, but there's still a long, long way to go. Yeah. A couple of just yeah. really quick questions for you. How have you enjoyed the broadcasting with ESPN? I really like your insight and analysis, and I like that. Uh, you know, you're not afraid to really give a player a critique when they need to be critiqued. I love it. You know, I love it. I, I It's funny. I don't know why now I'm a little more open, but I, I tried it 20 years ago right after I retired and I worked for NBC and I was horrible because I was like afraid to be opinionated. But now, I mean, at this stage of my life, um, I feel like I, I need to be real. First of all, I need to be myself and I need to to criticize as well as compliment if I see something not, not working. So I really love it. I love our team. We've got, I mean, Pam Shriver, Mary Jo, or Fernandez are two of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. And we've got a great roster. You know, when you look at Patrick McEnroe, Darren Cahill, and John McEnroe, and Darren Cahill, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a Cliff Drysdale. It's a fun team to work with. And I think having my tennis academy, too, and seeing, I've had to relearn what these younger kids, how they're playing with the Western grips and the open stance. And I've had to relearn that whole thing. And I think that's helped with my TV work. Now, I think when I watch you guys, I go, they're having a lot of fun. You can just tell that you've got, you know, a good camaraderie and you enjoy going to these events and hanging out and teasing each other. And that looks like a good place to go to work every day. It is a great place to go to work. It really is. It's It's a lot of fun. And at the same time, we're hopefully giving out a lot of wisdom and, and some good analysis of the matches. Your use of social media, I, I like it. You know, you're on there pretty frequently, and uh, I follow you closely. And again, I follow you uh, with Chrissy by tail. Um, how do you like social media? Because, like you said earlier in the conversation, social media wasn't around when you were playing. No, I, I mean I, I like it. I, you know, I'm not married, and I don't have a husband, so I have a lot of free time. <laughs> so I, sometimes I hear my, my friends go, God, you're like really talking a lot last night. And I go, I'm just, I'm in bed alone and I'm, I have a lot of free time. And, you know, I'm just, you know, it's, it's very interesting. And I feel social media, you know, some of it can be negative when it comes to uh, the haters and the bullying. But I mean, I, I've been lucky that I haven't really um, come across much of that. I think it's, it's good for discussing things and, and getting some ideas out there and listening to people learning about how people are feeling. So I think, and, and getting the word out, obviously business wise, but, but I think it's, it can be a good outlet also um, for people to, if they want to express themselves. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm right now I'm a fan of it. We'll see. Maybe next year I won't be, but <laughs> I, it's worked out well for me so far. 
Last question for you. You grew up playing with a wooden tennis racket. Obviously, they don't use wooden tennis rackets today. But if they did, who wins on the men's side? Who wins on the women's side? Let's say it's hardcore. Let's say it's U.S. Open. Everyone has to play with a wooden racket. How much different for the player is the experience of graphite and what they're playing with today versus a wooden racket that you played with? It would affect the serving a lot. And so the players with big serves, I think, wouldn't, would have to work a little bit harder um, to win points. So I think Serena, it, her serve would be more returnable. Mm-hmm. Once you return that serve, you'd be in more rallies with her, and it might be a little different. I think the graphite and the new materials definitely help the power players. But there'd be more, um, uh, you know, evenness, I think, in a match and uh, less of a gap with the power players and the consistent players. I think they would, it would close the gap a little bit. I'm, and that's not to say the top players still wouldn't be the top players, but it would even the playing field, I think, more. Yeah, I mean, I play golf, and you know, I, I've talked to Tom Watson before, and he said that he hits the ball further today with the clubs and technology of today than when he was in his 20s and they were playing with a, a wooden driver. I have a better volley now at 61 years old than I did <laughs> when I was number one in the world at 25. So that should say something. Oh, my gosh. Chris Everett, yeah. tennis icon, winner of 18 Grand Slams, broadcaster for ESPN, uh, she's got the Everett Tennis Academy. She's got Chrissy by Tail, which you can find on Twitter at Chrissy by Tail. You can find Chris Everett on Twitter at Chrissy Everett. You know, I've done this show for 12 years. I've wanted to have you on for a long, long time, and I'm so happy that we had a chance oh. to uh, chat. Oh, I'm so glad we, we had a chance. Have you been asking for 12 years? I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. I, I haven't. But, you know, okay, it's all about timing right and, and yeah, making sure that uh, we know the right people to, to get to you. And, and yeah. you know, Natalie's terrific. So I'm, I'm really happy that we had a chance for this conversation. Well, it was very interesting. And you asked great questions. So thank you very much, Brian. Thanks, Chris. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR, powered by Postano, after this. Hi, it's Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. Did you know that Super Bowl 50 broke the record for single-day Wi-Fi usage and beat last year's record before halftime? And then nearly 80% of fans use their mobile phones during live sports events. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. And that is why major venues around the country work with Boingo Wireless to manage their wireless networks. Boingo knows fans, and they know how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. Boingo designs, installs, manages, and monetizes wireless networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Chicago Soldier Field and Phillips Arena, home of the NBA's Atlanta Hawks. Boingo is the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless services so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Sports Business Radio has teamed up with Boingo to bring you monthly stadium stories focused on how technology is changing the business of sports. I will speak with Boingo and their partners, including athletic directors, venue owners, leading sports marketers, and industry influencers who will share valuable insights you'll want to tune in for. 
For more information on Boingo Wireless, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. This is Sports Business Radio. We are back to wrap up this edition of Sports Business Radio. A pleasure to speak with tennis icon Chris Everett. Thanks to her for joining us on the show. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Pistano for powering Sports Business Radio. Follow them online at Pistano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at Boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. We should have an announcement coming up soon about our next Sports Business Radio Roadshow coming up later this year. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Just go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We are rated in the top 100 business news podcast. You can also find our show on Audio Boom and via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps. Follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. Our Twitter feed was named to the top 50 sports business must-follows on Twitter by Forbes.com for 2015. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hello everyone, Mark King here, president of Adidas Group North America. One of the most inspiring parts of my job is the conversations I have every day with extraordinary people who are shaping the sports landscape. I talk to athletes, league executives, athletic directors, and agents, and now I'm bringing these conversations to you through my new podcast series, Extraordinary Happens, Competing in Sports, Business, and Life. This series dives deeper into what inspires the people who are leading change in sport, both on and off the field. I want to know what makes them tick and uncover how their challenging convention to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, their businesses, and themselves. And I want to share those stories and insights with you. Tune in to my bi-weekly episodes of Extraordinary Happens on iTunes and Stitcher. And remember, get out there, challenge each other, lead change, and make extraordinary happen.